the Word of the Lord from Genesis 22. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father? He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. This message is structured a little differently than most of the sermons I have preached. We will be examining the testimony of biblical character according to the biblical record. As I understand it, a testimony illustrates what God has done in the life of another and serves to encourage us and sometimes lend direction for our own relationship to God. We will be considering the testimony of Abraham, the great patriarch recognized as the father of the faith. This testimony centers around a call from God and the desire to know and do God's will. Most of us who pursue a call to ministry are often stressed by the desire to know and do God's will. If only God would make clear to me exactly what He wants me to do next. I know I've been called to some form of ministry, but exactly what does that mean for me? What should I be involved in? How many responsibilities should I take on this term? What does the Lord want me to do in response to this particular problem or crisis which I am currently facing? Our anxiety is often based on the revised uncertain version of Jeremiah 29.11 which we have quoted before, I know the plans I have for you, and I'm not telling you. Now, we're familiar with the beginning of Abraham's story. The opening verses of Genesis 12 present the popular call to Abraham to go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. This introduction to the famous patriarch demonstrates the great faith for which he is known. He leaves familiar country 
and extended family in order to travel to a territory that is unknown and yet to be revealed by God. Now this has been the foundational verse for many NBC students who have left the comforts of homeland in order to follow the call of God which includes this time of preparation here at NBC. Now the central verses of Genesis 12 Describe how Abraham left Haran and journeyed toward Canaan. Now remember, God's call indicated that Abraham was supposed to travel to the land which I will show you, said the Lord. As attentive readers, we should be looking for any sign in the text which indicates exactly where that land might be. According to the biblical account, the first place Abraham stops is Shechem. And at that site, God appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants I will give this land. And in response, Abraham built an altar to the Lord. However, in the very next verse, we're told that Abraham proceeded on to another location and set up his tent between Bethel and Ai. He built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord but what is striking here is that there is no response from God, no word from the Lord. In the very next verse, Abraham moves further south into an area known as the Negev. At this point, there's no discussion of building an altar, no calling on the name of the Lord, and no word from the Lord. Instead, the testimony immediately communicates that Abraham encountered a famine. And in response, he runs to Egypt. Now I must interject at this point some information which is related later in the story. In Genesis 26, Abraham's son encounters another famine, which the biblical account ties to this previous famine in the days of Abraham. Like his father, Abraham's son was also living in the Negev at that time. And also like his father, Abraham's son sought refuge from the famine by moving to another country. In this nearly parallel situation, however, God intervenes and says to Abraham's son, Don't go to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. All right, let's review Abraham's initial journey. He first settles in Shechem, where God appears and communicates, this is the land. Then he moves further south, builds an altar, and calls on the name of the Lord, but there's no response from God. Then he moves into the Negev, where he encounters a famine. Then he runs to Egypt, a place which later we find out God says is not the place to go. So, based on the evidence we have so far, exactly where should Abraham be? On the one hand, there is this location in Shechem where God actually appeared and said, this is the land. And on the other hand, there's a place where we encounter famine and all our children are starving. Now, despite what seems to be an obvious choice, I can relate to Abraham's concern to be thorough. I also have that inclination to check out every possibility when it comes to important decisions. Regardless of what may have been clear direction from the Lord, 
I tend to investigate all the acceptable options which lay before me. So I can understand why Abraham moved around, perhaps wanting to be certain of exactly where he should be. Now the account in Genesis 15, in which God repeats his promise, indicating that he would make Abraham a great nation. We find that Abraham appears to express some anxiety by questioning God and explaining to God that he is childless and his only heir is a servant born in his house, a man with a heritage from Damascus. Now God assures Abraham that he will have an heir from his own body and his own descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens. This is followed by the famous passage in which we are told that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Yet within two verses, Abraham's anxiety reappears as he asks God, how will I know that I shall possess this land that you have promised? How many times have we expressed similar doubts begging God for some sign of assurance that God is present and He's working things out for our good. If only God would write His instructions in the sky or perform some little miracle right in front of my face so I could be sure about my faith. I've related before that as a child during Sunday morning church services, I used to secretly pray that if, if God, if you would only raise the roof of the church just a few feet for just a few seconds and then drop it back down. That's all I would need and I'd never question you again. Just give me my own little miracle. So I can understand Abraham's sense of insecurity. Now the next account in Genesis 16 presents the scheme in which Abraham's wife suggests a way in which the two of them can have a child of their own. Now, Sarah reasons that since she is barren, Abraham should have relations with her maid so that Sarah can obtain children through her servant. Now, Abraham voices no objection and becomes the father of Ishmael through Sarah's servant, Hagar. It's evident from the account that God is not involved in word or deed in this scheme. Abraham and Sarah seem to be attempting to help God out by providing an heir through their own means. Once again, we find it all too easy to relate to this testimony of Abraham. How many times have we helped God out by inventing schemes beyond the commitments and responsibilities which he has clearly given to us. When I was in high school, I was shocked by one of my youth leaders, a mentor of mine who carried me through some very difficult times when my father died. This man announced that he felt it was God's will that he divorce his wife and marry another woman in the church who would also need to divorce her husband he explained that the two of them made a better ministry pair for serving God than if they were apart from each other. They argued that together they could help God out more than if they were apart. It's amazing how we think we can help God out beyond the responsibilities He's already given to us. In the next chapter, Genesis 17, 
When God repeats his promise of land and descendants, Abraham again expresses his uncertainty and reasserts his own scheme as he cries out, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. It's as if Abraham has grown weary of waiting and seems doubtful of God's promise ever being fulfilled by means of a son through himself and his wife Sarah. Lord, if only you could see things my way. It would be so much easier. Abraham's boldness in relation to asserting his concerns is further indicated in the well-known account in which Abraham questions God's decision to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The latter half of Genesis 18 describes Abraham's concern about whether all the righteous would be wiped out with the wicked in these towns. Abraham presses Almighty God with a seemingly irritating series of inquiries. What if there are 50 righteous in the city? What if there are 45 righteous ones in the city? What if there are 40 righteous in the city? What about 30? What about 20? What if only 10 righteous ones are in the city? Will you still destroy it then? Like a patient parent, God seems to tolerate Abraham's apprehension. For me, this recalls those childhood memories of pressing mom and dad with a series of questions which start with phrases like, what if, how about, do you think that, he might, we might, you never know if, did you try, have you thought about, when did you last, are you sure that? Of course, we can't overlook the two accounts in which Abraham shields himself from danger by deceivingly presenting his wife Sarah as if she were only his sister. The latter portion of Genesis 12 and again in Genesis 20 relate these two events. Abraham convinces Sarah to call him her brother when they're in a foreign country. He did this out of fear that the people who saw her great beauty would want to kill him in order to take her for themselves. The biblical testimony of the life of Abraham implies that perhaps this giant of the faith is not so unlike us as we might imagine. One who seems to lack attentiveness to God, who expresses anxiety and doubt, who feels the need to help God out, who questions the Almighty and reflects the self-centered patriarchal society around him, this one seems to share a testimony with which we can all too often relate. Abraham's transformation begins with the birth of the promised child. In Genesis 21, the promise of God finally emerges in miraculous form. Emphasis is placed on the miracle when the narrator indicates that Sarah bore a son to Abraham in his old age. And that Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. The focus on old age and that the child came from the bodies of Abraham and Sarah themselves highlights the miracle of God. 
In response, Abraham held a great feast in celebration of the day when his son Isaac was weaned. By this point in the testimony, it's clear to the reader that the child Isaac represents both miracle and promise for Abraham. This is the astonishing child born to Abraham and his wife in their old age. He's the long-awaited heir who makes possible God's promise of producing through Abraham a great nation with descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. The promise, the vision, the great dream from God is now in Abraham's hands in the child Isaac. At this very point, as if in the fullness of time, God tests Abraham. The opening verses of Genesis 22 again. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will show you. The narrator ensures that God's triple modifier for Isaac is clear. Your son, your only son, whom you love, at this particular stage in the testimony, we certainly anticipate Abraham's bold apprehension which we have witnessed time and again earlier in the text. This is the time to express his doubts. This is the place in the text where we should hear the cry, Lord, have you fallen off the planet? Did I hear you correctly? Can you confirm this is what you want me to do? What about the miracle of this son born in my old age? What about the promise to bless all the families of the earth through this heir? And forget all of that. This is my son. This is the place where all Abraham's anxious uncertainty should be brought to bear, loud and clear. And yet, when we witness the account of Abraham's trial, none of this comes forth. Abraham does not utter a sound in response to God's absurd request. All we see is Abraham silently and immediately acting to carry out God's request. Abraham displays complete submission to God. No objection, no complaint, no question, no display of anxiety, just humble and serene obedience. Abraham has finally arrived at a point where he stops struggling with God. It's as if Abraham has come to the place in his life that no matter what happens, God will bring about God's plan. If Isaac dies, God can provide another child, or God can raise up Isaac again, or God can change the plan. Abraham has been transformed. He's not the same person. He's come to a point 
of complete surrender to God. In the midst of Abraham's testimony, we must not be distracted by questions which the narrative is not concerned to answer. This account has nothing to do with prohibitions against human or child sacrifice. This account has nothing to do with raising questions about God's moral character for initiating such an act. It was first written in the context of a strange society for which child sacrifice was not even considered beyond reason. The real issue at the heart of Genesis 22 is God's question put to Abraham, Am I more important to you than your son? Am I more important to you than the promise of land and descendants and kings and greatness? Am I more important to you than the dream which I myself have given to you? This account is an ancient foreshadow of Jesus' words, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Am I more important to you than your car, your home, your wife, your children, your dream of the ministry which I myself have promised you? A testimony was shared a number of years ago on a radio station about a Russian who became a Christian, accepted Christ, and even became the pastor of an underground church during the days of communism in Russia. One day, as the church was holding a secret time of worship, communist guards entered and arrested the pastor. They took him to an interrogation room and demanded to know all the names of the people who attended his church. When he refused to reveal the names, they began to beat him. After several hours of torture, the pastor continued to conceal the names of the people who attended the church. And at that point... The guards went to the pastor's home and brought out his 17-year-old son. And they beat the boy until blood gushed out of his ears and mouth. And the pastor broke down and cried, All right, I'll tell you the names. But then his nearly unconscious son looked up at his father and said, No, Dad, I would rather die than cause you to betray our Lord Jesus Christ. The father remained silent and watched the guards beat his son to death. Such radical acts of faith can only be understood in the context of resurrection and eternity and the sovereignty of God. We live to advance a kingdom much greater than all the possessions of this earth. God's call to surrender is not only illustrated in the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. It's reflected in the words of Jesus when he explains to his followers that anyone who wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's expressed in Paul's urging believers to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. It is modeled by Christ who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, an attitude which Paul exhorts his readers to have in themselves.
in the testing of Abraham, God reveals what can be done through a life completely surrendered to God. Genesis 22, verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God reaffirms his promise and we recognize its fulfillment in the rest of the biblical record. Abraham is included in the great hall of faith. He is recognized as the father of the faith from whom Christ is descendant and through whom all the families of the earth are indeed blessed. God has called each of us to our tasks and perhaps granted a dream and a promise as we do the hard work of responding to God's call and investing ourselves in his plan we must remain obedient to God's direction at any moment we must be willing to surrender whatever we may have accumulated or been given for as stewards of the Almighty we serve at the pleasure of the Lord God As we sing a hymn of response, I encourage you to pray the words of this song even as we sing them. Take this opportunity to affirm your surrender of all things to God. Let this be your altar of your living sacrifice to the Lord.